0: Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will dive into the world of sport management research as we discuss my background, what led me to studying the topics I love so much, and what I've learned in doing so. So, if you've ever wondered how a moderately successful collegiate player ends up as a sport professor, or how those individuals working in sport can use scientific research to help maximize the production of their employees or increase their fan base, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. So today I want to do something a little bit different. And I want to move away from some of the past conversations that we've had in previous podcasts. And I want to speak to research that's being done in sport management. Now, I'm going to focus very specifically on four studies that I've done in the past. But it's not going to be a discussion of just statistics and analysis. What I hope to do is show you what's being done by the scholars in the field, and then tie that in to how this actually applies to so those individuals who are out there working in sport management. So before I get started talking about these specific studies, I want to start with an overarching question, something I want you to keep in mind throughout the entire podcast today. And that question is, what does this podcast have to do with leadership, sport administration and management, and marketing? And hopefully by the end of this conversation, you'll be able to answer that question before we get started talking about the studies i want to today it's important for you to know a little bit about myself because the background of the person doing the research makes a difference because as with anything we enter into projects and things that we do with our own particular biases so in order for you to understand what it is that i was trying to do in these research projects and what my findings mean you need to know a little bit about myself so Let's go back to high school. I grew up just outside of Columbus, Ohio in a town called Westerville, Ohio. I grew up playing soccer my whole life and when I was in high school, I was fortunate enough to be part of the Westerville North varsity soccer team which was very successful in my senior year we ended up winning our state championship at the division one level at the highest level for the state we were so good that we actually ended the season being ranked seventh in the country now during that time i was also playing travel ball and i was traveling not only uh, around the country playing soccer but i was fortunate enough to be able to travel internationally and all of that led to me receiving a couple minor scholarship offers to smaller division one schools and a number of offers to come and play at division two in division 3 schools. I didn't really think that I wanted to play at a smaller school and so I was considering giving up this game altogether until I was contacted by Virginia Tech. And Virginia Tech contacted me, they brought me out on a recruiting trip and to make a long story short, I decided to go there purely for the reason of playing soccer. Virginia Tech had just moved into the ACC at the time and I knew that the ACC was the best conference for soccer in the entire country and I wanted to come and experience what that was like through playing And so I went to Virginia Tech, and I was fortunate to play there for four years, from the 2004 season all the way to the 2007 season. And while I was there, our team actually was very good, and we accomplished a lot. Three of the four seasons I was there, all but my freshman year, we actually finished the season ranked in the top 25 in the country. And that culminated in my senior year, making it to the Final Four for Division I men's soccer and playing in the College Cup. Now, we lost in the semifinals that year, but we did end up being ranked third in the country at the end of the season. For me personally, I had some success but not on the level that my team did. I was brought in as a goalkeeper and for the first two seasons, I sat behind an upperclassman who ended up going getting drafted and having a career in the MLS and playing professional soccer. My junior year is when I actually got my opportunity to play and I ended up starting a total of 13 games that year and I culminated a record of 9-3 and three during that span. My goals against average was pretty average. It was 1.42 over that Time. I had two shutouts. Nothing that really stuck out and said that I'm an elite player, but it was good enough to start and play for that team. Now, going into my senior year, we had a goalkeeper competition and I was in line to maybe get some playing time, but unfortunately, I ended up tearing my UCL in my elbow, my ulnar collateral ligament, and needed Tommy John surgery to fix that, which means I had to miss the entire season. And once the season was over and I was graduating, I made the determination that I didn't want to end my career with an injury. So I rolled in graduate school at Ohio State, back where I was from. And I rolled in a graduate program and I contacted the head coach of Ohio State's men's soccer team asking if I could come in and meet with them and talk about the possibility of playing. And when I went in and I had the conversation with their head coach and their assistant coach, I told them a little bit about my background. I told them who I was. I told them about my time at Virginia Tech. And I told them also that still can't play. There's probably going to be another six months before I'm able to because I was coming off of Tommy. John surgery. And fortunate enough for me, they said that they hadn't recruited another goalkeeper to replace the one that they had lost. So on the spot, they offered me a position on the team. And I worked very hard to get back. And I actually ended up winning the starting goalkeeper spot. During that season, we also had some success on that Ohio State team. We ended up getting all the way up to being ranked 10th in the country at one point in the season. Not only that, but we made it to An Tournament and we lost in the second round to one of the top teams in the country in the University of Akron. Unlike Virginia Tech, though, I actually had some personal success there and I was able to elevate my play and make Penn State all-tournament team. I started 15 games total in my time there and I went 8-4-2, so my record was about the same as Virginia Tech, but my goals against average all of a sudden dropped from 1.4 to 0.9. And I became nationally ranked in goals against. My save percentage all of a sudden shot up to .82. And I was ranked in the top 40 in the country for save percentage among goalkeepers. I had five shutouts during that time. And so while I was doing this and while I was playing soccer, I was enrolled in a graduate program in sport management. And I started to take classes where we had conversations and we talked about various organizational theories. And while I was in these classes, I was performing well on the field and I started to ask myself the question of why was there such a big difference between how I performed at Virginia Tech and how I did at Ohio State? It didn't make sense to me because physically I was the same player. It's not that my skill level improved, and in fact, at Ohio State, I would argue that my skill level went down a little bit because I was playing that whole season injured. You see, I had come off an elbow surgery, but five games into the season, I got flipped upside down going for a ball that was played into the box, landed on my shoulder, tore my labrum, tore my rotator cuff, and had a second degree separation of the AC joint that I played through the rest of the season. And so I wanted to know what was making the difference. Why was I all of a sudden performing so much better at Ohio State than Virginia Tech? In this class that I was in with an individual named Nathan Chelladurai, who's one of the founders of the field of sport management, in this class, he started to talk about a theory that's called leader-member exchange. And that theory dealt with this idea that the leader of an organization has a relationship with the employee. And that the quality of that relationship actually affects how the employee performs the duties of his or her job. And so I got to thinking and I got to wondering, could it be that the relationships that you have as an athlete with the leader of the team, the coach, could the quality of that relationship affect how someone's performing on the field? Could we see the same thing that we saw in the business context apply to this coach-athlete relationship? And I went and I started to have a couple conversations with my advisor, Dr. Brian Turner, and with Chello Dureye, and we talked, and I proposed this idea, and I talked to them about trying to do some research on this, and to their credit, they said that this seemed like an interesting topic, and they agreed to take me on as a doc student. And so I started my PhD working under Dr. Turner, and I started to go and research this idea of leader-member exchange. Because I wanted to be able to answer this very simple question that I had about myself. Now, when you do research and you start looking into a theory, there's two ways you can go with it. You can read an article about that theory and then move forward and try to read the most current articles that are there and start to develop hypotheses or research questions around that. Or you can do what I did and you can start tracing that theory back in time and just go back year after year after year until you find the articles or the books that started this theory, that started and created this idea. And I did that. I traced this theory of leader-member exchange all the way back to its inception. And I came across two scholars that were very, very instrumental in describing this theory of exchange between individuals. And those two scholars were named Blow and Homans. Blow began this theory in 1955 with his dissertation called The Dynamics of Bureaucracy. And what he did for this dissertation is he just went and he sat in a workspace, and he did what's called observational research or an ethnography. He put himself into the environment and made observations about what he saw and reported them out. And the most important thing that he found in doing this is that during the course of a day, the employees in the office would oftentimes interact with each other. Now, he noted specifically that oftentimes they might go to the water cooler, get a drink and engage in these informal conversations. And that they would talk about things like the weather or the local sports teams or what's going on in people's life outside of work. But in those interactions, sometimes he noticed that people also asked other individuals, other workers for help with projects or help learning a new skill set. And what he observed is that when someone asked for help and the person that they asked agreed to give them that help, all of a sudden those individuals began to establish a relationship or a friendship with one another. And this is the beginning of this theory, this idea of relationship building. Now, Homans comes along three years later in 1958 and writes an article called Social Behavior as Exchange. And he follows it up in 1961 with a book called Social Behavior, It's Elementary Forms. And so he's the one that starts to really develop this idea that Blau talks about in his 1955 dissertation. And he sought to classify these relationships between two people. And he started to talk about individuals' interactions or social behavior in terms of what he said was an exchange relationship. And he defined this as the exchange of activity, tangible or intangible, and more or less rewarding or costly between at least two individuals. And he said that we choose to engage with individuals in a relationship based on this idea of a cost-reward analysis, meaning we evaluate in our mind what is the cost to us of helping that person, what is the actual cost versus what is the reward that I could receive for doing that. And Holman said and found through doing experimental research that if the cost for doing something was lower than the potential reward that I could get, then individuals would choose to engage in that exchange. They would help. A very simple example of this. Imagine someone asks you to borrow a pen or a pencil. What is the cost of you engaging in that exchange relationship? Well, worst case scenario is that person fails to give you that pen or pencil back after they're done using it. Well, the cost of that pen or pencil is very small, 25 cents maximum, a dollar. So oftentimes you will choose to let that person borrow that pen or pencil because the potential reward is that maybe when you need something in the future, maybe when you need a pen or pencil in the future, they will be willing to give you theirs. However, if we increase the cost, all of a sudden individuals might not choose to engage. So instead of asking for a pencil, imagine that I ask if I can borrow your car for the weekend. The cost of your car is considerably higher than the cost of that pencil. Now we're talking about worst case scenario, I wreck your car or I don't give it back to you. You might be out thousands and thousands of dollars. And so the potential cost outweighs any future rewards that you might receive from me. So as a result, you're going to choose not to engage in that relationship. You're going to choose not to give me that item that I've asked for and therefore the relationship will not grow or the relationship will not be in place. And this is what Holman's found in his in his work. And it started this movement of doing more and more research into this idea of exchange relationships. Blow follows this up in 1961 with what is the seminal piece in social exchange theory in a book that he entitled Exchange and Power in Social Life. What led to the creation of this book was that there were some criticisms of Holman's theories, and there were some criticisms of how micro-focused they were. And what Blow said in the writing of the book was that he viewed social exchange as a process of central significance in life, and as underlying not only the relationships between individual people, but between groups as well. And so Blow follows up Holman's work in 1961 with his own book, which becomes the seminal piece that talks about this idea of exchange theory, of exchange relationships and how they are formed, how they are built, and why they are so important. Blow highlights this when he says, quote, "...a person for whom another has done a service is expected to express gratitude and return the service when the occasion arises." And as a result of this, he starts to develop what's known as the social exchange theory, which defines what social exchange actually is. A didactic relationship between individuals, organizations, and or social groups that obligates one another through the creation of trust to reciprocate actions in an undefined manner within an unspecified time frame. Let's break that definition down some, just so we have a clear understanding of what we're talking about here. First off, the definition says that we're dealing with what's called a didactic relationship. Well, what is a didad? A didad is just something that has two things. So a didactic relationship is a relationship with two entities. And we go on to define what those two things can be. Well, the first can be the relationship between individuals, like Holman's talks about. Think about this very simply, the relationship that you have with your friend, your significant other, your parents, maybe a professor, maybe a boss or an employee. We have these relationships between individuals. We can also add to that by saying that the relationship can be between an individual in an organization. Think about the relationship that you have maybe with the place you went to college or your favorite sports team or even the organization with which you work we as humans tend to personify organizations we give organizations human-like characteristics so when something happens within the organizations we have an emotional feeling or reaction to it so think about what happens when your favorite sport teams wins you are excited for that organization it makes you feel something That is the relationship that you have with that organization. Think about how you feel at work or in college when the university or the organization you work for creates a policy or passes something that goes against what you're doing. It upsets you. As a professor of Coastal Carolina University, one of the things that I noticed is that the university has a policy about tailgating. They only allow students to tailgate before football games in a very specific area, and students hate that policy. Now, they they don't hate the person that created the policy, what they do is they have an emotional reaction towards the university. They have anger and frustration and sadness towards the university. And what that speaks to is this didactic relationship, a relationship between the individual student and the university or the organization as a whole. Now, the third individual with whom we can have relationships is social groups. So think about a group of friends that you might have. Yes, you have an individual relationship with each of the friends within that group, but you also have a relationship with the group as a whole you have an attitude or a feeling or a perception of that group and so when something happens to the group as a whole again you have that emotional reaction to it so that's the first part of our definition it is a a relationship between either individuals an individual and organization or an individual in a social group and the second part of that definition says that within that relationship there is a sense of obligation that is created When I do something for someone else, so if I do someone else a favor, an individual a favor, if I let my friend borrow my car, I expect that when the time returns that they will do a favor for me. The key here is it doesn't have to be letting me borrow their car, but it has to be something that I need at a specific time. The best example I have of this is when I was in college, I was dating a girl who lives six hours away, and I didn't have a car, but I wanted to go see her on the weekend. So I asked my college roommate if I could take his car for the weekend, and he said yes. He was generous enough to let me borrow his vehicle for the entire weekend. So after that weekend, and I returned his car, and I was very thankful, and when he needed a favor, I was more than willing... To do that because I felt obligated to help him out because he helped me out. So he needed a ride to the airport. And so he asked if I would take him 30 minutes to the airport. And then when he came in, if I would pick him up. And so I did that. I took him to the airport. I picked him up. And it was no big deal to me because he had done me a favor. And then that relationship gets continues. And so when I needed a ride to the airport next time, I went and asked him and he took me to the airport and picked me up so within these exchange relationships, we exchange different items back and forth. And every time you receive something from one of these exchange partners, you have this sense of obligation to return it back to them. Now, what if I said, I'm not going to give you a ride to the airport? What if I don't feel obligated to actually help that person out? Well, what happens is at that point, the relationship ends. The exchange relationship no longer exists because I've broken that covenant that we have, that unspoken agreement that we have to one another to help each other out. So this is the definition of social exchange. Remember, this all stemmed from me wanting to understand why I was a better athlete. And I traced this theory all the way back. And what I started to ask myself after I learned more and more about this theory is could these relationships be the reason? that I was the better athlete at Ohio State versus Virginia Tech. And so I started to ask myself, well, what type of relationships do we have as student-athletes? And I identified really three main groups that we have relationships with. We have relationships with our coaches. That's an example of relationships between individuals. We have relationships as student-athletes with our teammates or as a whole. We have individual relationships, but also as a whole, that's a relationship between an individual and a social group. And then finally, we have a relationship between us and the athletic department. So we have that relationship between an individual and organization. So I found that all these social exchange relationships exist within the structure of a collegiate athletic team. And I started to really ask myself this question about coaches. Because my two experiences at Virginia Tech and Ohio State could not have been more different when it came to the coaching staff. And just a couple of quick stories to illustrate that. When I was at Virginia Tech, and the very first chance that I got to play was my sophomore year. I had never played in the game. We were halfway through the season. We were having a great year. We were on a shutout streak, a school record for not allowing a goal. And we were playing a Division II college called Charleston College. Not Charleston, South Carolina, but Charleston, West Virginia. And we were up 8 nothing. And my coach finally looked down at me. And he said, why don't you get warmed up? We're going to put you in. And he put me in the game. And I was so excited. Not five minutes had passed in the game. And the kid from the other team hits a miraculous shot off his shin guard that goes back stick, upper 90. And all of a sudden, our, sh- our shutout streak ends. And I'm disheartened. And I feel awful. And I'm walking off the field. And I'll never forget, my coach just walked right up to me and he said you know why you got scored on because god hates you and he just kept walking away later my senior year after i had torn my elbow and after i would had surgery i was still going to practice because i still wanted to feel like a part of the team And at Virginia Tech, in their practice facility, there's a fence that goes around the entire practice facility. And oftentimes, balls will get kicked over the fence. And we had a team manager that would do a number of things for us. And one of the things he would do during practice is when a ball got kicked over, he would go and he would get it. And so a ball gets kicked over the fence. And I'm sitting on the sidelines with our athletic trainer. And our student manager gets up and he starts to jog out of the facility to go get the ball. And our coach from across the field yells, sit down. Drew, get up, off your ass, get that ball, and earn your scholarship money. That was how my coach treated me when I was at Virginia Tech. Juxtapose that to when I was at Ohio State. I told you I was coming off of elbow surgery. I still couldn't practice. And in springtime, we would have spring practices. And so I was off just doing some footwork uh, drills just to try to stay sharp. And the assistant coach came up to me and we were just having a little conversation he asked me what number I wanted to be for the upcoming year he gave me some options and I looked at him and I said I know this might sound weird but if there's any way that I could be number 32 that would really mean a lot to me and he just looked at me a little confused and said well why do you want to be number 32 that's not a typical number that you see goalkeepers wearing I said "I, I know um but I I went to Virginia Tech and unfortunately I was there when the shooting occurred and there were 32 people whose lives were taken, and I would just love to be able to wear the number 32 to pay tribute to them and pay tribute to Virginia Tech. He looked at me, and he said, I'll see what I can do, and he walked away. The very next day, I was in the training room getting, getting treatment, and he walked up to me, and the first thing he said was, Drew, I want to apologize. He said, I wasn't trying to cast off what you were saying or ignore you, but as you were talking, I was trying to think about how I could make that happen. And I went today and I talked to our equipment manager. It's going to cost a little money, but I'm going to pay for it out of my own pocket. And we're going to take the number one off every jersey. And we're going to rescreen them with the number 32. So you can have that. So just think about the different environments that were created for me at Virginia Tech versus Ohio State. At Virginia Tech, I didn't think my coach cared about me at all. In fact, I think he had an open disdain for me versus Ohio State, I think my coach, not only did he care about me, but he cared about my teammates. He wanted me to feel comfortable on that team. He wanted to make sure that I was happy, regardless if that meant he had to spend some of his own money. So I started to think, maybe it is that relationship that led to me performing different athletically. And the social exchange theory talks about these relationships. So maybe I can apply the social exchange theory to these relationships and determine if that affected, or affected my performance and affects other athletes' performance. So I delved into the literature to find out what affects the quality of that relationship. So in other words, what causes a relationship between a student-athlete and a coach to be good or bad? And I found that there were really two big things in the literature that other people had researched that talked about what makes a relationship a good or a bad relationship, regardless of if that relationship is between a coach and an athlete, or just between friends or a boss and an employee. The first thing that I found that affected that relationship being good or bad is how you were treated. If you believe that the person that is in that relationship with you is treating you fairly, you are more likely to believe that the relationship was good. If you thought they were treating you unfairly, then you were more likely to think that that relationship was bad. So in sport, that becomes pretty simple, especially if we think about the athletic playing experience. If I think that I'm working my ass off in practice and working hard and getting better and that I am better than other people on my team and the coach starts me, I think I'm being treated fairly because I'm better, so I should start. Now, if I think I'm better than people and I'm improving more and I'm doing everything my coach says for me to do and he still doesn't play me or she still doesn't play me, then I'm not going to trust my coach. And that's going to cause that relationship to be bad. Or at least that's what we were able to hypothesize from the literature. The second major factor that the literature talks about affecting exchange relationships is this idea of trust. Do you trust that when your exchange partner says that they're going to do something, that they're actually going to do it? And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to test that. Because no one had actually researched this yet within this relationship, within the coach-athlete relationship. And so I went around a university's athletic department i met with over 600 athletes and i asked them to take this survey that i created asking them questions about how fair they thought they were being treated by their coach about how much they trusted their coach i asked them questions about how good the relationship was that with their coach and then i also asked them how well they think they're performing athletically and i was able to get over 150 surveys back and i went through and i did this really elaborate form of analysis What I found in analyzing over 150 results from these surveys was that how fair a person believed that their coach was treating them had a direct positive effect on how much they trusted their coach. If an individual thought that they were being treated fairly, that led to them trusting what their coach was saying more. If an individual thought they were not being treated fairly, then that decreased the amount of trust that they had in their coach, which seems to make sense we also found that the amount of trust that you had in the coach had a direct positive relationship with how good you thought your relationship was with them. The more trust you had in the coach, the better you perceived your relationship with that coach. If you didn't trust your coach, you didn't like that relationship. You thought it was a poor quality. And so I was able to go through and analyze what actually makes a relationship between a coach and an athlete good or bad. And what I found was a direct reflection off of what my experience was. Because of those very small actions that were done for me at Ohio State, I trusted what my coach was saying. After I was injured, I went and we had conversations, and he told me, look, if you can't practice, that's fine. I will still play you in games. And I trusted that he was going to carry through with that. And he did over and over and over again. That built my level of trust in him, and that made my relationship with him better and better and better. So we were able to show what makes that good relationship, also what makes that bad. When I was at Virginia Tech, at one point, my coach promised to give me an increase in my scholarship allotment. It wasn't a huge increase, but he talked to me at the end of the year, in our end of the year meeting, and he said, I'm going to give you a $1,000 increase in your scholarship later that summer he gave me a phone call and he said I'm sorry I can't give you that we have a recruit that I need to give that money to well as soon as he did that I could no longer trust what he was going to say because he didn't follow through on our initial agreement and that made my relationship with him so much worse now remember I said at the very beginning I was really concerned with this idea of performance and can the relationship with the coach actually affect performance. And what we found in these 150 individuals who we surveyed was that if you have a better relationship, you're going to be more committed to that coach, meaning you're going to feel more emotionally attached to them and you're going to feel a greater desire to return all the favors that they do for you. That's what we call a sense of obligation to give back to the coach. And we found that the way that you dispel that obligation is through performing better. So the more committed you were to your coach, the better that you performed athletically on the field. So I was able in this first study to show that if you have a good relationship with your coach, you actually will perform better on the field. And I was able to answer that very first research question I had and explain why I was so much better individually at Ohio State than I was at Virginia Tech. But I didn't want to stop there because it's not like my Virginia Tech team perform poorly in fact we performed very very well as I said we finished in the top uh, 25 in the country three times over my four years there we got all the way to the college cup and finished third in the country my senior year and yet everyone had the same view of our coach as I did everyone on the team didn't like him for different reasons but they had their reasons just like I did and so I thought well wait a minute I can explain why my performance was better at one school than the other, but why was my team performing better at Virginia Tech than at Ohio State? And that led me to these second types of relationships, the relationships that an individual has with the team as a whole. Remember, we talked about these. We said that you have a relationship with a social group or maybe your friends. Well, that's the same type of relationship that student-athletes have with their teammates. And what I found when I looked at both the team at Virginia Tech and my team at Ohio State was that the individuals on the team all had really good relationships with each other. In fact, at Virginia Tech, the relationship was oftentimes built out of the distrust and dislike of our coach. We bonded over not liking the coach. At Ohio State, people liked the coach, but they also bonded over other things. And so it wasn't that the coach relationship affected the performance of the team as a whole at Tech, but maybe it was the relationship that individuals had with their teammates. And so I wanted to test this. And so again, I asked a group of over 600 people and collected over 150 responses about their relationships with their teammates. Do they have good relationships with their teammates or not? And then I asked them again about how they perform individually. And what I found was a very similar thing to the coach, that those individuals that had good relationships with their teams felt more committed to their teams. They felt more emotionally attached to their teams. They felt a greater obligation to give back to their teams. And how did they give back to their team and teammates? Well, they did it through performing at a higher level. So we were able to show that if you have a really tight relationship with your teammates, you will actually work harder on the field and perform better. And that made sense to me and explained why we were so successful at Virginia Tech and also why we still had success at Ohio State and were able to get all the way up to 10th in the country. And so within these first two studies, I was able to answer my own personal research questions. I was able through this research process to explain why I was a better athlete at one school than the other. And also explain why regardless of my attitude towards my coach at Virginia Tech, why the team as a whole was still able to perform at such a high level. Now, this is great to understand yourself, but oftentimes what we do in sport management research is we stop there. What I try to do is I try to take it to the next step. And I try to ask, so what? What does this mean for those individuals who are actually out there practicing sport management, who are actually working in the job force, not just us academics who are doing the research? And the so what question led me to two answers. This tells us how important leadership is. Now, that seems obvious to a lot of people when I lecture and I tell them this, that leadership is important. Well, no duh, there's all these books and all these people talk about it, but no one had researched it in this specific context. So I was one of the first people to be able to show just how important leadership is of a coach with collegiate student athletes. More specifically, I was able to show how you treat an individual affects how they perform athletically. In the past, all research had really focused on athletic performance being a reflection on your development of specific skills like reflexes or strength. I was the first one to really look at this idea of how does interpersonal relationships, these exchange relationships, how do they affect you? And these exchange relationships have a massive influence on how you perform athletically. And what this led me to understand better is how coaches should treat student-athletes because in that survey, going through and analyzing the results, I was able to see that those individuals that had good quality relationships with their head coaches – were individuals who coaches went out of their way to make the student athlete feel like a part of their family. They went out of their way to talk, with those, to talk with the student athlete, not just about what was happening to them on the playing field, about their athletic development, but they went out of their way to talk about how is your boyfriend, how is your girlfriend, how are your parents doing, how is classes or how are classes going, how are your grades, what do you plan on doing after you're done in college. They talked to them and cared about them as more than just an athlete. They cared about them as a person. And that doing that, that small thing, having that conversation about things away from the playing field led to individuals having a better relationship with their coach. They felt like their coach cared about them and feeling like their coach cared about them made the athlete want to return everything that that coach was doing for them. And so they're more willing to run through a brick wall for them and perform better on the field or put in extra work maybe in practice or after practice to improve. And so coaches should take note of this and coaches should try to engage these these athletes in these conversations and take an interest in their lives outside of athletics. We learn that very important lesson from this about leadership being important in how to lead student-athletes. The second thing that we can take from this from a manager standpoint is that a sense of community, teamwork, and social connection is important. So we need to think about that idea of the dynamics of the team. That is very important to how you perform. So the question becomes, well, how can leaders do this? Well, when I was at Virginia Tech, one thing that we did at the end of every preseason, when we're running two and three a days, when we're exhausted, the last day of preseason, we would always go to our coach's lake house. And he had boats there and docks and we would do a big cookout. It was just a chance for us to relax and bond away from soccer. So, doing those types of outings, sometimes you'll hear about teams going out and doing team building activities like high rope courses or leadership training, all those little things, those things off the playing field again that make us feel like our team is a family, those create those sense of obligations to our teammates where we want to make sure we don't let them down. And so, coaches should look to create those types of environments. They should look for activities that will help create a sense of community with their athletes. But I remember I said I wanted to talk about four studies. Those are just the first two. After i researched these two topics, I then realized, well, there is a third entity that student athletes have relationships. We talked about the individual relationship between the coach and the athlete. We talked about the relationship between an athlete and a social group, their teammates. What about that relationship between the athlete and the athletic department or the athlete and an organization? And I wanted to understand that relationship better as well because the athletic department actually does have quite a bit of say over what an athlete does. And so I wanted to look at what makes these relationships good. What makes an athlete perceive the relationship with their university and their athletic department specifically as a positive relationship? And so I looked for ways in which the two interacted. And I went to the literature again in the business world to see what were things that might lead to good quality relationships. Just like I had done with the coach-athlete relationship, I went to the literature to see what led to good relationships between people and organizations. And I found that the literature really spoke of two specific things. The first thing that the literature said that led to good relationships was the organization engaging employees in developmental experiences, in experiences that would help them develop specific skill sets that might help them in their job or experiences that might help them develop certain skills for outside the job. So these developmental experiences were found to be very big. Sometimes these are the organization putting on clinics or training sessions that they go and invite their employees to come to to teach them a specific skill set. Sometimes that's setting up opportunities for the employee to go meet with people about life planning or state planning or planning for retirement. All of those things are developmental experiences that the organization can put on that were found to lead to a better relationship between the organization and the person. The second thing that the Organization can be found to do to help with that relationship is make the employee feel a part of the organization by recognizing when they do something well. Uh, Organizations do this all the time now through having award banquets or award ceremonies and awarding the top seller or the top performer and having these big events. Well, they do that to recognize what you are doing as an employee to make you feel more part of that would that's what leads to the quality relationship. But what's the outcome of that relationship? Because with the coach-athlete relationship, I was looking very specifically at the performance of the individual. Well, here I didn't necessarily care about that. I wanted to see what the literature said in the business world about outcomes of good relationships between an organization and an employee. And what the literature said is that a good relationship can lead to to that employee having a more positive mood at work, having a better attitude towards the department, and actually performing better in the jobs that they're assigned. And so I wanted to take that and I wanted to test whether these ideas would hold true for this student-athlete-athletic department relationship. So again, we sent out a survey. Now, this survey was to a smaller population of around 400 individuals. And we looked specifically not at current student athletes, but former student athletes, because we wanted to look at a very specific outcome, which I'll get to here in a second. So we asked them about the relationship with the athletic department. And we also asked them about how involved were they in community service activities? Because in assessing the literature, remember that if an employee was involved in developmental experiences, they had a better relationship. Well, the developmental experiences we thought of that student-athletes are involved in is community service projects. So we wanted to know if the involvement in these developmental experiences of community service actually led to a better exchange relationship. So we classified how involved you could be. You could either help plan the event, you could have attended a community service event, you could not participate at all, or you could have planned and attended. And what we found after we got these results from over 100 individuals back, was that those individuals that planned the community service events, that worked directly with the athletic department to plan these events, they had the best relationships with the athletic department. And it was actually a significantly higher relationship than everyone else, than those individuals who just attended, who didn't participate, or who planned and attended. So we were able to say that, gosh, these developmental experiences that the athletic department does actually can lead to more quality within the exchange relationship. We also found that those individuals that just attended the events had a significantly higher uh, relationship with the athletic department than those individuals who didn't participate. And so we were able to start to understand how to go about building a better relationship between an athletic department and the student athletes. But remember, we weren't just interested in that relationship building. We wanted to know what the outcomes of a good relationship were. Because without understanding the outcomes, we don't even know if an athletic department should work to build that relationship. And we focused on two specific outcomes. The first one was donating money back to athletic departments because one of the things athletic departments across the country look for is donations. They operate and are dependent upon that money that comes in from donors and there's a, a great bla- a, a, and a great place to start with trying to get those donations are the former student athletes that we have. So we asked these former student-athletes whether they intended to donate money back to the athletic department in the future. And what we found was that the better the relationship between the student-athlete and the athletic department, the more likely they were to donate money. In fact, a high-quality relationship was found to explain... 40% of your intent to donate money, meaning there were 60% other factors that were out there that affected your intention to donate, maybe how much money you make, maybe um, how often you come back to football games or other sporting events, but 40% of uh, of your intent to donate was specifically based on how good your relationship was with the athletic department, that's huge, The other thing that we looked at is your willingness to speak positively about the university. Remember, past research showed that the better your relationship, the more happy and positive you are at work. Well, these are former student-athletes who are no longer at work, so we thought, how could they be positive? Well, they can speak positively about their experience. And just like with monetary donation, we found that the better the relationship, the more likely the student athlete was to speak well about the organization, to speak well about the athletic department. And in fact, we found that 50% of your willingness to talk positively about the university was based on just that relationship. Half of your willingness to talk positively is just based on your relationship. Now, people oftentimes ask me, well, why does that matter? Why do I care about someone speaking positively about the university? Well, speaking positively might generate future money. It might generate a willingness for other people to become fans of the athletic department. It might generate a willingness for other people to donate money. Maybe it sparks interest in someone's kid going to school at your university, which then gives the university money because they're paying tuition. Maybe it makes it other people's a fan and they're more likely to buy merchandise of the university, which again, generates money for them. So we found that the quality of the relationship between that individual student athlete and the athletic department led to these positive outcomes. And so we go back to that so what question. Why does this matter for sport managers? Well, it shows them that we need to look for ways that the organization and the athletic department can interact with their student athletes to help develop skills. And we can apply this not only just to the student athletes and to the athletic department. We can apply it to maybe a professional sports team and their fans. And we can see that the professional sports team need to do things to help support their fans and help their fans develop skills. And this is something that's actually fairly common. A lot of football teams and basketball teams, the NBA and the NFL, will actually have programs they do where they teach you about the rules of the game. Oftentimes, they'll call this like NBA 101 or Basketball 101 or Football 101, where they invite you in to teach you skills and knowledge with the hope that that will improve your relationship. And so regardless of the type of sport organization you are in, if you are a manager and if you're in charge, you need to figure out ways to show the people that are working for you, the employees or the fans or participants in activities that you put on, you need to figure out a way to show them that you care. And if you do, it actually will lead to positive outcomes. If you're able to do this, the employee, the participant or the fan will be more willing to give back to your organization. They'll give you time. They'll give you money. They'll give you other resources and they're more likely to speak positive about your organization to others, which could increase the amount of money you're able to generate. And so within these three studies, all based off my own personal experience and this idea of social exchange, I was able to learn all of this about how managers and coaches and leaders should act. But there was one more thing I wanted to do before I finished with this line of research, because as I was reading more and more about social exchange theory at this time, I came across another theory that fell under the social exchange theory. What it came across was a subset of the social exchange theory known as the theory of social attraction. And I say it's a subset because it helps explain why we formulate relationships in the first place. Remember I said, and we defined what the relationships are. They are these interactions between individuals, organizations, or social groups that obligate one another. But why do we choose to interact with that person in the first place? Well, the theory of social attraction helps to explain this. And it says that we don't just interact with anyone. We actually choose who we want to interact with based on certain qualities and attributes that they might bring to a table. So think about the relationships you have at work or the relationships you might have at school. You don't just randomly choose to interact with whomever is sitting next to you or interact with just anyone in the office. You choose to interact with people that you think can provide you some type of benefit. Someone that might be smart in doing well on a test or assignment. That's the person that you choose to interact with because maybe they can help you study the person at work who can help you learn different skill sets, or the person at work who's really sociable with everyone else who might be able to introduce you to other people. Even in relationships, we don't just randomly choose who our friends are out in the real world. We normally interact with people that provide something to us that we can't provide for ourselves. And that's what the theory of social attraction says. And so I wanted to go back to the beginning of the student athlete experience in college, and I wanted to try to figure out what factors affected why a student athlete. Chose the college they did. And at this time there was a lot of conversations about things like uniforms and colors and mascots affecting about what equipment apparel deals schools had. And I wasn't the first person to ask this question. There had been about 5 other studies that had looked at this and developed these list of factors and then asked student athletes to reply. The problem I found with those studies is that they weren't rooted in a theory. There was no theory supporting why they chose the specific factors. The theory of social attraction, on the other hand, did support why certain factors should be chosen. I took those five studies and I took all those lists and I compiled the items. There were 55 total items that had been studied. And I went through and I applied the idea of social attraction to that. And I was able to come up with a list of 28 items that I thought might affect a student athlete's choice in college. And I gave this survey out to over over 400 individuals at a university. And I had a hundred individuals return surveys. And I found the number one factor that was affecting their choice in college was the location of the school. Now, this was a finding that really amazed me because no other study had found this. And so I was perplexed as to why this was the case. And I went back and I read all the other studies to try to help understand. And I went back and I read this theory of social attraction again to to try to explain. And what I came to this realization was, is that I looked at a very specific college when I did my research. The college I looked at was located in the southeastern United States, and it was located 15 miles from the beach. Now, all the other studies that had been done have been done in the northeast or out west, not close to bodies of water, areas that got very cold over the winter. And what I realized was that it wasn't that any study was wrong. It was that the reason that an individual chooses to come to a specific school is based on the school that they're choosing to come to. And so why did it matter that I found this out, that I learned about the individual school matter because this has massive marketing implications for the organization what this tells us it's important that we as an organization know why people are choosing to incorporate with us why they are choosing to be involved with me over my competitor if i understand that just like this school if they understand that the reason student-athletes are coming to be involved with them is because of their location over everything else, then they can market that out to try to get the best student-athletes that want to choose a warm location by the beach. And so understanding who we are as an organization helps us to better market ourselves to people who might want to consume our product. In, in collegiate athletics, that means knowing how to get the word out about what makes me unique to potential recruits. On the flip side, if I don't like that that's the number one reason that people are choosing to come to me, if this university didn't like that the fact that we're so close to the beach was the number one reason people are choosing to come and play at my university, then they need to work to reposition themselves, to change the narrative, to highlight other factors that are unique and important about them that might lead to someone choosing to come to them. Finally, the other manager implication is we need to do research and understand our consumers better. Because if I were to do this at a Big Ten school, for example, if I were to do the same study at Ohio State, I imagine the number one reason that people would choose to go there, specifically with certain sports like football or basketball or baseball, would be the potential to play professionally. And the school that I did, that was the second to last reason that they said they chose the school because there was very few professional athletes from that school. And so we need to understand what we are and we can't just rely on this past research. We need to do the research ourselves as managers or or employ someone to do that. So that leads us back to the question we started this whole conversation with, the overarching question. What does this podcast about research in these four studies have to do with leadership, sport administration, and management, and marketing? Well, hopefully I've been able to point that out. And hopefully I've been able to point out a little bit for you how practitioners, how those individuals that are working in sport management in the real world can take what we find in research and apply it to what they're doing so that they may get better results. If you have any questions about any of these four research projects or questions about social exchange theory and its application to sport and even more specifically to student-athlete coach relationships or student-athlete team relationships, please feel free to reach out to me. I would love to have a conversation with you or share links or share these articles that I published about these topics. Or if you have questions about other research that's out there within the field of sport management, or if you just like this topic of how we can take research in sport management and apply it to the real world, I'd be more than happy to talk with you. Please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at the sport professor. Follow me, follow the podcast, and please share it with other individuals who are out working in the world of sport. Until next time, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.